You're listening to Disrupting Balance, the podcast for recovering work-life balancers, finding harmony in the imbalance of work, well-being, and the in-between. I'm your host, Hanifa Barnes, full-time education executive, budding entrepreneur, wife, mother of four, and so much more. How do I balance it all? I don't. Instead, I found harmony in the imbalance of it all. Listen to find out how other women just like you are doing the same. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Julie Young is a Korean-American adoptee, recovering lawyer, and mother of two, who grew up in an all-white homogenous community in upstate New York. And from the very first time she sought to know her Korean roots, Julie began to not only connect to her identity, but also learned to embrace her identity through the experiences in Black and Brown communities that she witnessed while volunteering in undergrad and in her work as a lawyer. The value in these experiences also helped Julie to found a nonprofit and create a film festival. Listen to find out what happened when Julie received a letter from Korea during her first year of law school and how she used her quest to connect to her own culture as an inroad to create the Tide Film Festival. In the guest chair today, we have Julie Young. Hello and welcome, Julie. How are you? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm well. How are you? I am doing well and excited to hear, well, actually excited for the listeners to hear all about your story, about how you're disrupting balance and your journey. So I want to jump right in and ask, what is your story? (laughs) Um, I will try and give you the condensed answer to that. My story personally is that I'm a Korean adoptee. I was born in Korea. Um, adopted when I was three to an Italian-Irish-American family, grew up way upstate New York in a town called Fairport. Um, grew up there, and in, which is an extremely white, homogenous suburb, like many others. Um, and then I came to college in New York City and have never left. I knew I wanted to be in a big city. Um, this is kind of where I found myself, for sure. And um, that's sort of the personal side to the story. Um, let's see, I'm a, I call myself a recovering lawyer because I was a lawyer and I still am technically and still do some uh, temporary legal work once in a while. Um, but my true passion is that I started a nonprofit called Dream Maker, which is a support for creatives. And um, one of the biggest one of my signature programs under Dream Maker is the Tide Film Festival, which I'm the founder of. And that's a festival for to highlight uh, storytellers of color. So filmmakers of color, the, the submission criteria is that the writer, producer, or director has to be a person of color in order to submit. That's, yeah. that's a condensed version. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very condensed based on our previous discussion. So let's kind of jump into some of this. So going back into your story, you talk about well, you identify as a Korean American and you grew up in this white homogenous environment in upstate New York. How much did how much of that environment really impacted how you viewed yourself, saw yourself, and thought of yourself as a child who looked different from the people around you? That is, uh, it completely, completely affected me um, 
in what I would say was a negative way because I grew up essentially completely disconnected from my Asian identity and I wanted to be white. I wanted to have blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, that's something that I said regularly. Um, and so, you know, it, I had no sense of self as far as my Korean American identity. I, I didn't even have a Korean American identity. Anytime I saw an Asian person, which was extremely rare, but if and when I did, um, <clears throat> even in t on TV or something, which again was extremely rare, but when I did, I just, I just thought I was something completely different. You know, I, I did not connect at all to anything um, or person who was Asian. So it, it was confusing. You know, while I was going through it, I, I wasn't aware of the fact that it was confusing because of this reason. Um, but, you know, seeing no representation of myself anywhere, including within my own home that I was growing up in, um, was very detrimental to my identity building, to my self-esteem, to, to all of that. So what was the turning point? Because you talk about knowing you wanted to go to college, like in a more suburban environment, or, or, or I guess an urban environment. If urban, you think right, correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so what, what point did you realize that being in the homogenous environment and knowing, okay, I want to come out of it? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and interestingly, I don't think one that's ever been asked of me. Um, so interestingly, I kind of feel like my spirit always had this longing, right? Always felt this void, always knew something was wrong, but I just wasn't very much in tune with my spirit at that point in my life. But there were a couple of times where my uh, American mom, which I only say for the purposes of clarification on this, I don't call her my American mom. She is my mom. Um, it, it took me to New York City for just, you know, mom-daughter weekend. And Anytime we did that, I just, I mean, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But I, but again, I was a, you know, a, a preteen and then a teen, and I still didn't realize why I loved it. You know, the topics of diversity and, and identity, racial identity were not actually topics back then. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so um, I, I just, the, that, those trips to New York City always stayed with me. And for whatever reason, I just knew that I had to get out of the small town that I was in. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I think consciously, I didn't know why, but I think spiritually somewhere deep within me, I knew that I needed something more and that I was missing something. Hmm. Wow. And so let's talk about getting to New York college and what was the biggest like culture shock or shift for you? Well, what's funny is that <laughs> I went to Fordham University and I <clears throat> was on the Rose Hill campus. So that is also an extremely white and conservative school. So even though I came to New York City, I kind of jumped right back into a, a community that was a lot like the one that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. Of course, it is New York, so there was some diversity. Um, but the friends that I had were still very much like my friends at home, which is to say predominantly white. Um, and so, you know, here I was in New York, it took me, I want to say until my junior year of college, so three years to go to K-Town, to go to Koreatown and to go wow. to a Korean restaurant, wow. you know, yeah. and that, that was only because um, I happen to have one other Korean adoptee friend in college and she was the one who was like, come on, we have, we're going to a Korean restaurant. Uh -huh. so it took me quite some time 
to even still sort of start a cultural slash identity shift for myself once I got here. Yeah. And even then, had you at that point, had you begun to attach those experiences to your identity? And if not, at what point do you realize you began to attach the Korean experience to your Korean American identity? Yeah, no, at that point, I wasn't at all. And even I would say um, it, it took, well, you know, let me back up and say this. I also, I did a lot of work, um, community service work in the South Bronx when I was, when I was in college. And at the point, at that time, Hunts Point, South Bronx was quote unquote, you know, super scary place to be. And I remember feeling this sense of community with the black and brown people that I've both volunteered with and worked with and um, <clears throat> assisted. And again, I don't think I fully understood why, but I definitely felt this something that was different than I experienced growing up. Um, and I think that, you know, black and brown communities for the most part, at least in my personal experience, are usually much more welcoming and embracing of others. Um, and and I felt that I felt that when I was working in the south in South Bronx and you know creating friendships and and all of that. So I think the seed was planted then, but I didn't really know it. It really wasn't until um, so then you know after college I went to law school and I went to a Jewish law school. Um, <laughs> so again, not a ton of diversity there, but. Um, after law school, when I started dating my husband, <clears throat> my then boyfriend, now husband, who's black, that's when I really started to come into my own. So it was basically a black man through his example of just really knowing who he is and knowing mm -hmm. his history and being really proud of it. And, mm -hmm. and just, you know, uh, the confidence and the love of self, his example of, of just being you know, really influenced me a lot. And and he actually was the one who said, you really should get to know your, <clears throat> excuse me, you really should get to know your Asian identity. And um, that's when I think the journey really started. Wow, that that's that's powerful. And on that journey, did you find at times you felt conflicted or mad at yourself for not, recognizing things sooner or connecting sooner? Like what was that emotional process? Yeah, definitely not um, mad at myself, which is interesting because I get mad at myself very easily. But, you know, <laughs> I, I I did recognize that it wasn't my fault. I mean, I growing up the way that I grew up in a in a place where, you know, who I am was not acknowledged at all. Uh, it wasn't my fault. You know, I, I'm a product of my environment at that point. So I wasn't mad, but I was definitely sad. I was sad that it did take me so long to, you know, get to this place of loving being Korean American and of sort of, you know, wanting to dive into learning whatever I could. And I'm still in the process, you know, I'm still learning. Um, but I think it was more sadness, you know, sadness that First of all, I'm not the only one with this experience. There are something like 250,000 Korean adoptees and mm -hmm. uh, some in Europe and some, but, uh, you know, most here and our experiences are so similar. So I was sad that, 
you know, that's the case. That's actually still the case, unfortunately, for and not just Korean adoptees, any children of color being brought up by white parents. I think, you know, they have at least some of this experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's talk about finding and connecting with your Korean mom in that journey and experience. Yeah, um, I, I I will start by saying I was very fortunate and am very fortunate for two reasons. And then I'll backtrack. One is that it was pretty easy to find her. And the second thing is that I still have a continuing relationship with both her and my entire Korean family, which is not mm. always the case. Mm-hmm. But so shortly after college, that same friend that I told you who took me to the Korean restaurant, um, she very unexpectedly went to Korea and met her um, Korean father. And uh, her coming back and telling me that story just sort of ignited. I knew growing up my whole life that I wanted to try and find my Korean family. I just Mm -hmm. didn't, you know, I I just didn't think I was ever going to be able to, you know, honestly. But so so my mom, I I called her up after hearing this story and I said, okay, it's time. I want to, I want to look for my Korean family. She said, okay. You know, she's always been very supportive in that. So um, when I was 13, my mom took me to Korea on a tour of like adoptive families. So it was mostly, you know, actually a lot of them was like the mom and then the child, but some were both parents and then um, the child. But during that trip, I was super fortunate and I'll kind of try and fast forward the story a little bit. Um, we visited the agency that processed my adoption. And <clears throat> interestingly, there was an elderly woman there who had been there for a long time because I'm now 13 and she had been there 10 years ago when I was there and she remembered me, Hmm. which is just phenomenal. And so she actually gave me, that's when I found out I have two sisters and a brother and that I was the youngest of four kids Hmm. and that, you know, everybody was still in Korea. And so she gave me their names, their birth dates, like all of that information. Um, which was completely shocking to both me and my mom because, you know, I didn't know my story. My adoptive, my adoption paper said that I was abandoned, which is a very common thing. And so here in America, you know, you hear abandoned and you think you, I was a baby left on a church stoop or step or something. And, and then, you know, you, you sort of make up stories and the story that was made up by my mom to me was because I would say, why do you think I was adopted? And she would say, well, your mom was probably really young and couldn't take care of you or something like that, right? And so this is the story I grew up with in my head. So yeah. I'm thinking I have a young, like, teen mom or something who who had to abandon me on a, on a church step. And come to find out, I was the youngest of four children. My parents were married and the rest of my family is still there. So one thing, you know, just a totally different on a tangent, but I work with adoptive parents a lot. And one thing I always tell them is do not make up a story. Just say, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. And if you ever want to find out, I will try and help you. Yeah. But like, don't make up stories because then literally that's what I grew up with. That was my story, but it wasn't my story. So um, anyway, I held on to that information. My, <clears throat> my family's names and birth dates and all that stuff for, I mean, that was a good 10 years. So probably when I was 22 or 23, I um, wrote a letter to that same agency. And I I said, you know, this is my name. These are their names. If you know where my mom is, can you please send her this letter? 
and I included a letter for her. And then two weeks later, I got a letter back, which was, yeah, (laughs) pretty incredible. Um, Come to find out, I actually found out, it did sound like on that trip when I was 13, that that woman could have just called up my Korean mom. But I, of course, wasn't ready for that. And, you know, nobody wanted that. But um, come to find out later, when I finally did be my Korean mom, she told me that that woman did call her. She did call her and (gasps) say, your daughter is here. But my mom was still so poor at the time that she was embarrassed and she didn't even want to, you know, she wasn't ready to to meet me again either. Let's talk about the emotional process of this, right? Because you had kind of the experience at 13 with the agency and now it's Mm -hmm. 10 years later, you're a woman, you're in in an urban area, you're coming into your own, you have uh, a Korean friend who's introducing you to the Korean experiences and now you write this letter, you get a letter back. What is that emotional experience for you? Or had you not connected at all just yet? No, I mean, it was extremely emotional. I I will play out this scene for you that I will never, ever, ever forget. <laughs> I So I, I had just moved into this new apartment in Brooklyn to start law school. And so there was no furniture in the apartment. And um, <laughs> I take the mail in. And, you know, this back then, I don't know if they still use these, but the the international letters had that red and blue, you know, outline on the envelope. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you knew it was like an yeah. international letter. But also the only other, the only words in English were my name and my address. Everything else was in Korean. So, you know, I kind of instinctively was like, oh my God, is this, you know, really what I think it is? And I go into my apartment. I just drop like my bags and whatever I had on this wood floor. And there's no furniture, like I said. I sit down on the floor and I tear open this letter. And out falls this little tiny black and white picture of a baby. Mm. And now think of this. I've never, ever, ever seen myself as a baby up to this Mm. point. Mm. So, um, and of course, the whole letter is in Korean, so I can't understand it. But so I'm staring at this picture and I am just enthralled. But your mind is so, or your heart is so protective of yourself that I knew that had to be me. Like, why else would they be sending me any other picture of a baby, right? But. I was like, is that me? I wonder if that's me. That can't be me. Oh, no, that's not me. Like, I was trying to convince myself that it wasn't me. I was like, duh, of course it's me. But so, you know, that just sort of gives a a tone of the emotionality of it. But so um, the craziest thing, what I did back then, um, I was living outside of Park Slope in Brooklyn, which is now hugely gentrified in a very wealthy neighborhood. But at the time, it wasn't. And um, so there weren't these cute stores and, you know, shops and restaurants and stuff that there are now. And I took the letter at the time. There were a lot of um, a lot more Korean delis, Korean owned and run delis. And um, and so I just walked the streets until I found a Korean deli. And I went in and I asked the woman at the counter. I told her the situation and I said, can you please read this letter for me. Oh and my she God. stood there and translated the letter for me. Oh my God. <laughs> Isn't wow. that crazy? Yes. So then I basically walked in a daze, like literally like just a daze back to my apartment. So it was pretty emotional. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm I'm even feeling the emotion from that. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> but I mean it is good that you've been able, you were able to find them and you talk about being able to maintain the relationship. How were you able to do that? Like start it, get to see them and then maintain it. Mm-hmm. 
Well, so it took me a really long time to actually go back to Korea to meet my family. I was not emotionally ready to do it for another like 10 years. Yeah. Um, and so I did that and my husband went with me and my American mom also went with me. And, um, you know, that was of course extremely emotional and intense, yeah. but I'm very fortunate because, so I have two older sisters and an older brother. My oldest sister, I come to find out, she had basically taken care of me um, for the first three years of my life. So she kind of plays a much more maternal role in my life. Um, and so her daughter, she has a daughter who is my niece, but she's, um, you know, she's in her early 30s. So we're, 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 I act like I'm in my early thirties. So we're like, we're like super, you know, we were the closest. And also fortunately she lived in Australia for a couple of years. So her English is, is really good. Okay. So that's, she and I really connected and bonded really well. And so she um, is helpful in, in keeping that alive. But I also, you know, sometimes my Korean mom will just call me and even though we can't talk to each other, yeah. we try and, yeah. you know, we look at each other and she generally cries every time. But, you know, we just, um, we've been able to visit each other a few times. It's been a little bit too long now. It's been about four years now. But, um, but yeah, so that's I'm very that, fortunate. Yeah, huge, huge blessing. So when we spoke, you mentioned that you have children. And so your children are... Korean and your children are black. So knowing your experiences and knowing how important representation, well, recognizing how representation matters, especially in your experience, how are you shaping and raising your children thinking about all those things? How do you and your husband make sure that they understand who they are fully? Yeah. Um, well, that has been once I actually had healthy born children, um, it has been my life's mission to basically try and help them feel good about themselves. Um, and I think top of that is, you know, racial identity, self-esteem around your racial identity. So, and I think the same is just as important for my husband. And, um, I mean, I know it is. So we have had these discussions basically since they were, you know, little, um, my husband is also a historian and he, he knows things about world history, which of course includes African history. Um, it's kind of incredible what he knows, but so he has been educating them on African history and world history since they were very young. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, we kind of try to learn together about Korean culture because as I said before, I'm still learning. Right. Um, and we've we've also one big thing that I always emphasize to them and to really any mixed um, person. One of my soapbox issues is that first uh, is that mixed people are not half anything. So uh, a lot of times people say to me, oh, so your kids are half Korean and half black. And I always say, mm -hmm. no, they're not half anything. They are whole. They're complete. Mixed identity is a complete thing. So they, I always say they're black Korean, which is one thing, you know? Um, and it's, it's interesting because when I have that conversation with other mixed people, and I know not everybody prefers that term, um, but right. it, um, it's, it's interesting to see the light bulb go off sometimes because, you know, the way that I always explain it is this, it's like when you are going to have cake for dessert, you don't say I'm going to have 
a cup of flour and a cup of sugar and two eggs and a stick of butter. Yeah. No, you say you're having a piece of cake because all those things together mixed together make cake. You know right. what I mean? So right. all the black Korean together is not a half and half anything. It's a whole, you know? Mm. So, um, so we talk about that. We, you know, they are free to call themselves, you know, or label themselves however they want. Sometimes they're black, sometimes they're Korean, but um, in their own minds, you know, but um, it's just something that we talk about all the time. Yeah. And I would imagine it's important because it's safe in your house, you know, when they're thinking through their identity and how they want to be called, but the challenge is the world outside because Right. The world just has this one lens or or this silo right. lens on what, you know, race is. Yeah. So do you find Absolutely. that they come home with stuff and say, well, you know, this happened. So how how does this work? Do you find they have those questions that you all have to work through with them? Yeah, they did when they were younger. They're now they're twins. They're 13 now. Um, when they were much younger, they definitely did. In fact, it was yeah. interesting. I remember the first time in in it was in preschool, the year before kindergarten. Um, I think it was my daughter came home and she said something like something about being brown and something about me being white. And it was because someone in her class said something, and now I can't remember exactly what it was. But that was sort of the first time they had a sort of realization about skin color and the labeling yeah. of the skin color and how, you know, what that is. I remember the first time my son was like, no, mommy, you're white. <laughs> I was like, hell no, I'm not white. <laughs> <laughs> conversations like that when they were younger and now they now they're pretty pretty set I, I think they have a really good foundation in that now that's great that's great so let's switch a bit because you called yourself a recovering lawyer I can kind of <laughs> identify with that I, I like to think I'm recovering even though every now and then I'm still dabbling um so yeah. I, I understand your pain <laughs> yeah. so why law in the first place and then how have you been able to connect these experiences like identity, race, law into what you're doing now with the nonprofit and the film festival? Mm -hmm. I mean, law in the first place, because initially I wanted to be one of these, you know, save the world lawyers um, and came to find out very quickly when I got out of law school that having all that debt and all the you know, whatever that that's really hard to do. Um, so I actually started out at a at a big white shoe law firm, and then um, of course that's a miserable spirit killing mm -hmm. experience. So I mm -hmm. left that after a couple of years, and then I went and tried to do some family court work, and that of course is also spirit killing in a different way. Um, but so I just realized really quickly that like this was not the thing for me. Um, although I continued to practice for, you know, a few years, um, 
I then got out of it and left the left and started working for another nonprofit and kind of always knew that I wanted to start my own thing, but just was never totally sure what it was going to be. And then I kind of started helping young creatives just on my own and, um, you know, with off the record legal work type of stuff and Mm -hmm. was doing it often enough that then it just came to me and I thought, hey, maybe this can be my nonprofit, you know. And so I created it really on a whim just because I had that thought one day, Mm -hmm. Um, but did kind of realize, you know, that this idea of representation is so powerful. And, you know, I've seen Mm -hmm. how it affected me in my life, the lack of it. Um, And like I said, since the moment my kids are born, it's been my mission to make sure they didn't feel the way that I felt growing up, you know, <clears throat> feel unseen. And um, so then, you know, I came up with this idea for a film festival kind of a while ago. It took a, it took a little while to get that going. Um, just because I think, you know, film and media has the greatest impact on oh, yeah. us individually and even and as a society. Um, and so with you know, representation still lacking. We're making some strides, but still lacking heavily. Um, it's just become a passion of mine. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, so, but how how did you do it? Like a film festival, <laughs> I, the first thing I think of is, you know, Cannes, and I don't even know if I'm saying it yeah. right. And, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, I think there's the one Robert De Niro does. I forget the name mm-hmm. of that one. That's Tribeca. Yes, Tribeca. It just seems like such a big undertaking. I mean, how did you do that? It is enormous. It's an enormous undertaking. And I did it with, you know, the help of the universe, honestly. Once I kind of, it's it's interesting because it had a few fits and starts right in the beginning where I was just like, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do this. This is way too much. This is crazy. I can't do this. And then um, once I kind of got some situations that were standing in my way out of my way, Mm -hmm. um, the universe just opened up and supported me. I was connected with a young woman who I asked to be the director of the festival because she had done some work at a festival at Brown University. Um, You know, she understood my vision. She understood my mission, which is the most important thing to me with anybody Mm -hmm. who works with me. And then from that, you know, she brought in this other young woman who then became co-director and the three of us just, we got an amazing director of programming. It, Mm -hmm. I don't know, it was sheer, sheer passion, Mm -hmm. dedication, will, belief in what we're doing and, and just figuring it out, you know? Um, So is it like the startup type environment? Like uh, when I'm thinking of these great people you're pulling into the fold, like, are you having to pay them? Do you borrow money to pay? Or are they just saying like, this is a great mission and we'll get paid on the other end? Yeah. So no, they're not getting paid, which is unbelievable, which makes it even more unbelievable that people would work as hard as they work to make this happen. Um, So we just had our third year in November and it was virtual, of course, because of the pandemic, but, um, you know, so now it's at this point where I've had some, some of my team has been with me all three years and, you know, they'll like my director of programming gets paid a tiny, 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 tiny bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 
um, you know, but basically everybody else is volunteer. And so it's within my budget every year to pay these people. But unfortunately, <laughs> at this point, we haven't gotten big enough grants and or donors to make that possible. I do believe it's going to happen. Yeah. Um, especially because with film festivals in particular, a lot of grants, you're not eligible for them until you've existed for three years because oh, you know okay. since it is such a hard thing to do they yeah. want to see that you're actually you know for real and you're going to keep going so this year we can actually apply for a lot more grants than we could before yeah um, which is good because you know i i know that i'm not going to be able to continue to to uh, uh keep people and and not pay them i yeah. i like to think of myself as a pretty pretty good leader I like to you know yeah. I'm pretty good at having people see my vision and and keeping them excited about it but you know that that's only gonna take me so far so I am working on that yeah that's that's amazing and so when you think about I hate to even like think this way because I know how 2020 <laughs> unfolded but because I just like to be hopeful and you know think of the long term what do you think this year will bring for the film festival film festival and what you want for your own experiences? I know you said you're still working on um, really getting into your Korean uh, background and understanding all that. So what do you want when you think about understanding your Korean experience and also the film festival? What are some things you would want for this year? Um, well, for the film festival, first of all, I hope and pray and believe that we will be able to be in person, at least for most of it in November. Um, wear your masks, everybody. Exactly. Um, so I definitely, I have to say, as amazing as it was that my team pulled off this virtual festival, you know, we're about community. So we're about the actual physical touching interaction community. You know, my the flip side of Tide. Um, aside from providing a platform for filmmakers of color, is to create this, what I like to call inter-community between people of color. So the, I would say my other mission in life is to really help people of color communities work together, to live together, to play together. Because I feel like the more we do that, I mean, I just, the power that could happen, you know, in such a good way, if, mm -hmm. if if POC communities did that. I mean, I've been in rooms of um, communities from all different backgrounds and we're all having the same conversation, you yeah. know? And, and I just know that if we work together more, it, we could really change things in, in a pretty amazing way. Um, so, you know, I really want to be back in person because that does actually happen at Tide and it's really the most beautiful thing. I've had so many people tell me, if I can say not so humbly, but it's true. I've had so many people tell me, that our festival is literally the most diverse thing they've ever been to. And, you know, it's all intentional, you know, it's all intentional. Um, and so the fact that the, that intention is, has been successful, you know, makes me, it just makes me, it humbles me and it makes me feel so proud and it, it just makes me so happy. Um, mm. So I do hope to be back in person and I think we will be able to. I also hope that we will expand a little bit this year. We've been three days for the past three years and I would like to expand it um, maybe at least another day um, and just continue to grow and continue to have the impact that we have on especially the filmmakers. Um, yeah. 
but also just the community that we help to create. That's my, that's my hope and vision for Tide. Um, for me personally, I mean, I would love to go back to Korea very soon. We'll see yeah. if that happens. Um, and I've also kind of just recently, I, I started trying to teach myself Korean a few years ago. And, oh, you know, yeah. this, it's, yeah, it's not easy. But what I did was, um, and I went from literally not knowing, you know, more than like one word that I was butchering probably um, to pretty much, you know, I taught myself the alphabet, which is not hard to do, but I can, so I can read it now. I just don't okay. necessarily know what it's saying. Yeah. Um, but I, I started watching Korean dramas when I, when I was trying to teach myself Korean, um, because, you know, that's a great way to learn a language yeah. Is, is yeah. to hear it like that. So that I stopped doing that for a little bit, but I just recently started doing it again, watching dramas because I really want to get back on that. I really, I, before I leave this earth, I really want to be able to speak to my Korean family in Korean. So that's yeah. enough that I'm kind of re-upping that, that goal this year. I think that's great because what I've learned growing up in an African household where one parent is of one culture speaking a language and another parent, another culture speaking a language, is that language is the gateway into the culture, right? As much as you're steeped in it, as much as you understand like the foods and and um, the way people associate, once you connect into the language, it opens up so much more of your experiences in the culture. Absolutely. You know? So I think Absolutely. that that would be totally awesome. So that is great. And I look forward to participating in the film festival. I've never been to one, so I have no idea. Oh, I, I would look I would love to jump in once you guys are in, once we're all in person and I'd love to participate. So I look yeah. forward to that. But with that in mind, how can people connect with you, learn more about you or learn more about the Tide Film Festival? So the website for Tide is tidefilmfestival.org. Um, and then we're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and it's the Tide Film Fest across all the social media accounts me personally my um, instagram and twitter is at big girl voice e-i-g-d-i-r-l-v-o-i-c-e as in use your big girl voice mm. um so you can always reach out to me there or you can um yeah that's probably the easiest way to to find me great and for those listening i will have all this information in the show notes this has been wonderful thank you so much julie Thank you so much for having me. I am Julie Young, and I am disrupting balance by helping create more equitable representation in film and media and by encouraging and supporting people of color to tell our own stories. Thank you for listening to the Disrupting Balance podcast with Hanifa Barnes. Hey, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. And if you're not following me yet, find me at Disrupting Balance on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And guess what? I'm on Clubhouse at Hanifa Barnes ESQ. And if you want free tools or any and all things Disrupting Balance, check out the website, www.disruptingbalance.com. Talk soon.